welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always want to give you guys a welcome. Very happy to have people listening and responding positively to the show, particularly since everyone's sitting at home, twiddling their thumbs, trying to find things to do. Very happy to be able to fill a little bit of time in your days. Um, so we have a great episode to talk about uh, today, but before we do, I just want to make a quick announcement. So the next issue of Counterpunch, that is Counterpunch Magazine, our print magazine. The next issue is going to be the last on paper. I've been talking it up for five years, how we print this magazine on paper, and we love it. But we are transitioning to a new and exciting phase at Counterpunch. So if you get a subscription to the print magazine, you'll get that last issue. Plus, you will automatically become a subscriber with access to exclusive content on Counterpunch. That should be launching in a couple of months. There's going to be all kinds of new and interesting stuff. So things that you would normally have seen in the magazine are now going to be available on the website for subscribers. It's going to be a new feature that I think is going to be really beneficial for everybody who may have missed out on a lot of that great stuff that was only in those print magazines. So we'll have extra podcasts. We'll have at some point, hopefully other content, including written content, uh, multimedia stuff and so forth. So do look for that. Uh, become a subscriber or just a donation through the PayPal also works, keeps Counterpunch going, keeps the lights on and keeps us producing this show. So uh, with that, I want to turn to my guests today. So um, we are sitting here in our homes in the middle of this pandemic trying to find things to do and I know that a lot of people are binge watching all kinds of stuff uh, mostly crap some of it good probably um, but I want to talk film I want to talk movies and I want to talk the kind of movies that really are worthwhile in this time as we think about our politics and we think about the changing nature of well the United States the global situation, the economic situation, and so forth. And we're all lefties here. We all want to think about things from that perspective. So I have two excellent guests with me today to talk about a couple of movies that are high on their list right now. So let me introduce them. The first is Louis Project. Louis is well known among the Counterpunch crowd. He's a longtime contributor to Counterpunch. He is our go-to for film criticism. He also blogs at louisproject.org. Uh, he's the moderator of the Marxism mailing list and a member of the New York Film Critics Online. Uh, check out Louis's contributions at Counterpunch and at his website. Uh, also on the line, I have Shallon Van Tyne. Shallon is a PhD student in cultural and intellectual history at Ohio University. She is an adjunct professor in history and humanities at the University of Maryland Global Campus. You can find all of her work at her website, shallonvantine.com. That's Shallon, S H A L O N. V-A-N-T-I-N-E, ShallonVantine.com. Shallon, Louie, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hello. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you guys on and to talk about uh, movies, because right now, as we're sitting at home, I think it's a good opportunity for us to really expand uh, you know, our horizons in terms of film and everything. So you guys are on the show to talk about your selections. Now, I want to just make it very clear. I don't think that we're necessarily talking about our top five all-time movies, you know, drop dead everything else. We're talking about five movies that you think would be worthwhile to check out. So, Louis, I want to start with you, if we could. Um, I want to just ask you, just right, right from the outset, give me your first movie, what it is, where you came across it, and why you selected it. Uh, Sancho the Bailiff. Um, 
It's a film by uh, Miss Oguchi. I, I'm not sure of the exact year, but uh, it's probably not as well known as uh, uh, Kurosawa or um, I forget the guy's name, but they made um, early, uh, I think early autumn, late spring. It's hard for me to remember. Yeah, Ozu, of course. Uh, but Miss Oguchi's uh, film, it's, um, it's an epic about um, people, uh, noble, noblemen, or children of a nobleman who, uh, who are sold into slavery, separated from their mother. And after uh, some hours, I'm not sure, it might be a two and a half, three hour film, are reunited. Um, and as a as an emotionally involving film, and as 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 a, as a work of art, uh, I, I regard it at, at the very pinnacle of Japanese filmmaking. Um, it um, it draws you into uh, the the suffering of of a brother and a sister, a sister sold into. Um, uh, basically into prostitution and the brother is uh, goes through all sorts of ordeals to try to reconnect with her and and, and the mom um, I, I regard as probably one of the top 10 films ever made and uh, like I, I believe well I, I might have mentioned to uh, Tarek that all the films that I'm recommending are available online and for free so um, it's, uh, it's as opposed to uh, your, um, you know, your your Hollywood uh, junk that's, uh, that that uh, might be available on uh, Amazon Prime or, or wherever else. A film like *Censure of the Bailiff*, because it's online, because it's free, is is something that you, you really can't miss. It's like it's like, you know, it's, for me, it's like recommending, uh, you know, *King Lear*. I mean, it's just it's just a great work of art. You know, it's one of those movies, Louie, when you when you sent me the list of movies you were going to talk about, I said, that's a movie that's been on my list for many years, and I've just never even seen it. And so in preparation for talking, uh, you know, I caught a few of the scenes and, and did a little bit of reading about it. Still haven't seen the whole movie, but man, it's breathtaking. Yeah, there's one scene that, I, you know, it just sticks in my mind of all these years. And I, the first time I saw it was like 1961 or 62. And then I saw it again, maybe, you know, about 10 years ago. Uh, it's, um, they're walking through a field of, of, of tall reeds and the, and the reeds are blowing in the wind and you hear, you, you hear the sound of the, of the reeds uh, swaying in the wind. And it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's just as a work of art, just visually, it's, it's, it's incredible. But what beyond that, what it does is it prepares you for, you know, for some, for some, some terrible fate that's, that's awaiting them. So the film is, it's, it's a combination of, of things of just raw beauty plus horror. It, uh, so anyhow, that's, that's, I think that's enough to recommend the film. Absolutely. Shallon, do you, are you familiar with Sancho the Bailiff and or Mizuguchi's other work? Uh, yeah, so I actually hadn't seen Sancho the Bailiff until last night <laughs> when I when I watched it. Um, and I, I the only other Mizuguchi film I've seen is Ugetsu. Um, but uh, like I, you know, chimed in there earlier, Ozu is one of my favorite um, Japanese directors from that time period. So 
Um, yeah, it was a wonderful film. I can, you know, back up that recommendation. Um, and it, you know, especially, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that he chose that film because one of the films that I'm going to talk about is also about sort of an ordeal between a brother and a sister and, um, and a totally different plot, but um, kind of a similar theme. Absolutely. We're going to get to that in a second. But just to finish up on Sancho the Bailiff, you know, I think a lot of people, as Louis mentioned at the beginning, would be familiar with Kurosawa or maybe even Ozu films like, uh, you know, Rashomon or Seven Samurai or even Tokyo Story. But Sancho the Bailiff is something different, I think. Um, Louis, would you, you know, would you take a shot at maybe explaining how this Mizuguchi film is so different from, say, some of the other uh, classics of Japanese cinema? Well, for me, it's 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 the film is very unusual in that um, you you meet characters who you know who, who who fall to the very bottom who who are not generally with with uh, Kurosawa's films and again Osu is a lot different than Kurosawa. Kurosawa's films involve um, uh, men and women of of you know of, of prowess. These these characters, the brother and sister, are humiliated through most of the film, and and your 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 sense of pity for them is is like I don't I don't think I've ever seen a a Japanese film where you see two people that have been so degraded and so humiliated, and that you feel for so much. You just you just you, it's to me the film is it's 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 it it, it makes you want to cry. It's just uh, a, a work of immense sadness. In the end, I, I don't even want to. Yeah, no spoilers. No spoilers. I'm watching it. <laughs> I should have said I no spoilers. I don't want to, what do they call it, a spoiler alert? Yeah, no spoiler. Um, no spoiler, <laughs> but it's it's just, the, the way the film ends is it sort of um, gives you a, a feeling of, of reconciliation, of, of um, deliverance um, that's, that's sort of... Um, Limited by the circumstances of the characters, who, who will never achieve the, the the kind of uh, you know nobility they once had, but just the humanity. Of the film is is just it's just breathtaking. Yeah, the one film that I agree with you about Kurosawa really not being a great parallel, though the one film, you know, that really does strike me in thinking about it, it's quite similar, same decade, uh, is Ikiru. Because, uh, you know, Kurosawa's film Ikiru is so different from the rest of his body of work, and I think it's probably pretty good double feature with Sancho. Okay, uh, Shallon, let's start, let's go over to you. Uh, let's get your first movie. All right, well... Um, I'll, I'll go in chronological order for mine. So, um, my first movie that I picked is Strike, um, by Eisenstein. It is a 1925 film. And I know that, uh, Battleship Potemkin is, you know, typically the one that is discussed the most, but uh, I wanted to pick Strike because, uh, people don't tend to talk about it as much and it is available for free on YouTube. Um, and I really like Strike, so I thought I, I would choose this one. When was the first time you encountered Strike? Because I think it depends uh, to, to a large extent on, you know, maybe courses one took in college or maybe a film buff friend that introduced you to it. When, when did you encounter Strike in Eisenstein generally? Uh, well, I probably watched it maybe, I'm going to say probably five or six years ago. And... Um, 
you know, I, I was watching it in addition to reading about Eisenstein and his methods on um, Soviet montage theory. And, you know, if your listeners aren't familiar with Eisenstein and um, his approach to film, uh, you know, Eisenstein, you know, thought of film as um, a sort of dialectical process. And and I think he does this really well in Strike in the way that he uses the visuals uh, and the way that he edits it. Um, and so this film really sort of stuck with me. Um, also, it, it felt a little more... Uh, closer to home because it was about, you know, striking workers as opposed to, you know, people on battlefields and stuff like that, that, you know, didn't really connect with me as much. Um, so that's kind of why I liked the film um, in particular. The timing of the film is interesting, too, coming in the middle of the 1920s, because, of course, Russian uh, arts she went through a dramatic shift about, you know, within the next five years after Strike was made. So in many ways, Strike is kind of a document of a very specific period in, in Soviet early Soviet filmmaking. Yes, that's actually really important, um, you know, in this period of film in, in Russia, um, the, the plot actually takes place in pre-revolutionary Russia, but when the film came out in 1925, um, you know, the um, Bolsheviks really needed to uh, emphasize the idea of, of a collective unity uh, between the workers. Uh, and so one of the interesting parts of Strike is that the protagonist is collectively the workers. It's You don't have an individual like, like most films who are, you know, who's the key hero of the story. The hero of the story is collectively the workers. So, um, you know, this really comes out historically, the historical context here is that, uh, you know, the films of this period uh, really emphasized, um, you know, people working together, um, you know, to, to take down capitalism and, and working towards revolution. One of the interesting things about Strike to me is to kind of see it in terms of I like to suggest double features if at all possible, and uh, <laughs> I think a good I think a good film to pair to pair with it is a. Uh, Earth or Zemlya Dovzhenko, because yes. of course it's, you know, one of course being the peasantry, one, you know, agricultural production, Earth, etc., all of the symbolism, you know, that that's loaded with, and then Strike being the sort of proletarian factory setting and so forth, and these two contrasts of those two films coming basically within a couple of years of each other, I think really does kind of uh, bracket what the 1920s and early Soviet film is really all about. Oh, I agree. And I love Earth, too. I even considered picking that one. Um, and, you know, the imagery is something that Eisenstein, you know, does so well. And this was, you know, not just, like I said earlier, not just done in an artistic sense, but he 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 felt that the way he edited and used imagery was it was had a political purpose. Uh, and you see that a lot with Strike, where you, you see these contrasts between the workers sort of juxtaposed with the machinery and then, um, you know, these sort of the capitalists portrayed as these sort of, you know, fat laughing, you know, um, you know, greedy kinds of people. And, you know, they're often con contrasted with like pigs. And, um, you know, one of the famous scenes from Strike is um, where, you know, the striking workers are, you know, being slaughtered. And it's, you know, immediately edited next to cows being slaughtered. So, you know, Eisenstein's using this kind of, um, you know, dramatic energy to, to sort of make a, um, a, a very powerful metaphor.
Indeed. Uh, Louis, your thoughts on Strike and or uh, Eisenstein generally, because I know you're going to talk about him at some point soon. Well, I'll tell you the truth. It's been years since um, I've seen Strike, but I saw just about all of Eisenstein's movie uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, at Bard College. The, um, we used to have um, Friday night uh, film showings with, uh, in the auditorium at, uh, on an old... 16 millimeter theater, uh, a camera, I should say, a projector. And uh, you know, I have um, vivid memories of, 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 of all of them. Strike, not so much, but uh, I mentioned uh, Battleship uh, Potemkin in my list of uh, five, uh, five films. Um, the, the thing with, with Eisenstein, you have to, you have to remember, I, I was, when I got to Bard, it was 1961, uh, I was, um, by no means a, uh, a, a radical. I mean, not many people were. And, uh, but I remember the feeling I had watching Strike, Battleship Potemkin, um, uh, Alexander Nevsky, the, the feeling of, of, of that, that working people can be, can be uh, masters of their own fate, heroes, uh, was 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 it was very unusual to, to have feelings like that, uh, sort of like the tail end of the uh, witch hunt of the uh, you know the McCarthyism, and uh, it was a little bit like uh, you know um, I had uh, heard uh, Leroy Jones poetry reading in nineteen in that same years when 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 I was watching these uh, Eisenstein films, so they were like little. There's also the time of the folk folk music revival when Pete Seeger was coming back. So the Eisenstein films for me were, were like a way of connecting to a long historical struggles of, of working people. And uh, as as the way, um, you know, uh, Chen has described, um, you know, described the uh, the strike, it, it all comes back to me. Uh, it's just... Uh, it's an amazing achievement that his, his films have, have, will always give you that feeling, um, you know, whatever whatever period you're in. Louis, I want to just ask you a quick follow-up and then throw it over to Shallon as well before we move to the next uh, movie, and that is that uh, just thinking about it, I, I realize it's a bit of a curveball question, but how do you how do you view the portrayal of workers, working people, you know, the, the, the working every man, say, in Eisenstein films and in the Soviet films versus, say, uh, Chaplin in Modern Times or Fritz Lang in Metropolis or some of these other films from other countries and other contexts where you had some, you know, some focus on, on the life of the working man, but it's so different, isn't it? Well, well, yeah. I, I mean, the the, um, the the thing with Eisenstein is is it's more it's you feel it's more grounded in the reality of of the of the, their lives. Is some, something like um, you know, uh, um, oh, Chaplin, or um, you know, or anybody else making films around that period. The, you you had to you had someone Eisenstein who experienced. You know what? A, what a revolution was 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 all about, and saw the power of, of workers. There's some you, you convey that in the film in a way you couldn't if you were Charlie Chaplin, or Fritz Lang. You know, you know, it's just, it's it's it's. it's I mean, I I was fortunate enough to you know to be very deeply involved in the '60s radicalization, 
And it, you know, the, the, that experience, it was, it was obviously, it wasn't a revolution, okay? It wasn't, it was just, a, you know, a, a mass movement. But to see, you know, to see a million people protesting on moratorium day and to see, you know, ordinary people who, who never, uh, you know, like GIs marching in de- anti-war demonstrations, you go through that experience, and if you're a filmmaker, it, it, it registers with you. It, it, it helps to, you know, to develop a, a screenplay that's, that's, that's more in touch with these realities. Shalin, what do you think about the portrayal of workers and the life of the working man in the early 20th century, say, in the Soviet films versus some of those others I mentioned? Yeah, uh, we, you know, when you were both talking about that, uh, a movie came to mind, you know, which I'm sure you've both seen, which is Bicycle Thieves. Um, and, you know, as, as, as people probably know, uh, when that movie came out in the 40s, uh, you know, Italy had been devastated. Uh, and, you know, that's a wonderful film. I, I, I almost thought about choosing that, um, but I, I didn't know if it was available for streaming. But um, there's a great scene in that movie where, you know, the, the drama of the story is happening and it's very tragic. And then in the background um, on the wall, there's a poster for a Hollywood, I don't think it was Marilyn Monroe, but a Hollywood, um, I don't think she was out yet, but a a Hollywood starlet uh, for a a movie. And it just sort of made me think of that contrast because, you know, and, you know, personally, and I I think, um, you know, Louis probably agrees with me. I didn't choose any Hollywood films. I, you know, I tend to um, think the lowest of Hollywood films generally, with some exceptions, of course. Um, And, and, and you're right, um, you know, Eisenstein and, and, and those that tend to come out of, um, you know, the Soviet film industry, um, you know, tend to have a much more realistic, um, a much better sense of realism. And, and one of the reasons why I picked Strike is, is not only because of its subject matter, but uh, one of the things that the film does well is that it really shows that, you know, you can't just strike and then your problems are solved. It goes through, you know, the struggles that they have after the strike and as the strike's going on and, and, you know, they're running out of food and, and, you know, there's tensions and all these other things happening. And so um, that sort of sense of realism, I think is one of the things that makes this film such a powerful one. Cause you know, it's not only looking at um, you know, the importance of striking but also, you know, what you need to sort of prepare yourself for. Like, you're, you're not in for an easy road. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, for me, a long way of saying I agree with what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for me, uh, the thing that really sticks out in my mind about Strike in particular, uh, Potemkin and, and the other ones too, although I've seen those more than I've seen Strike, is it's action. It's full of action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a silent yeah. film from 1925, but it's constantly moving. Everybody's moving and running around and yelling, and there's so much going on that you f- you almost yes. forget that it's a silent film. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, to me, and in, in recommending these films to listeners, just keep in mind that even a film from 1925, which typically, you know, requires a little bit of a different viewing experience, I mean, these are really action-packed uh, films, and uh, I think we'll probably, well, let me let me throw it over to Louis. I know, Louis, you had Battleship Potemkin on your list. I don't know if we want to just segue right into that. Well... I mean, I don't know much. What else I could add, except that it's like strike. Except the strikers are 
sailors, and it's about, you know, uh, I, I guess it, it, it's set in 1905, right? That, yeah, that's right, and um, I, right. Have, I, I, have a, I have a particular affinity for Potemkin because my family comes from Odessa, from the Ukraine. Uh, probably one of, I would say, maybe the three or four or five most famous scenes in any film in history of film uh, is in Battleship Potemkin, the famous uh, Potemkin Stairs with the baby yeah. carriage going down the stairs. If you haven't seen the film, you absolutely must. That is like a legendary scene. Uh, but anyway, um, Potemkin... Just let me, let me yeah. just jump in, Eric, and say one, one thing about that is, uh, I don't know if you've seen the, um, I guess it's the film about um, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, FBI pursuing Al Capone. Um, <laughs> there's a scene in there that, that, that mimics the Odessa Step scene where... Uh, uh, there's a, I guess there's a shootout between uh, Elliot Ness and and one of uh, one of uh, Capone's gangsters, and a, and a and a carriage goes down the streets like that. And I should say, by the way, um, what's what's the name of the guy directed? Untouchables. Uh, yeah, who's the director? Remember, um, Italian director, Amer Italian American, directed. Um, um, but Brian anyhow, Brian De Palma. De Palma, of course, Brian. <laughs> He's great. If you ever, if you, he's he did a documentary, uh, or was a documentary about him a few years ago. The guy, the guy is a real genius, and that film is like, um, it's it's a film that that shows you know his his love of the of the film art, film heritage, um, and uh, you know you meant <laughs> you're not you're not fond of Hollywood films. I, I, I you know I go out of my way to avoid them, except the end of the year when we have to. Have to you know award give them awards as part of New York Film Critics Online, but um, uh, you know uh, the um, De Palma is, is is like is is really and the guy's still making great films. He's I guess he's in his late seventies, early eighties at this point. He's he's really great. Absolutely. I, I love De Palma, although I think most people probably think of De Palma with Pacino and Scarface, unfortunately. Shallon, did you have anything else you wanted to add on Potemkin before we uh, move on? Uh, no, I think I think we said it all with that. Okay. Um, all right. So, Shallon, let's hear your second film. All right. Well, sticking with my chronological order, my second film that I chose is Salt of the Earth. Uh, it came out in 1954, directed by Herbert Bieberman. My name is Esperanza. Esperanza Quintero. I am a miner's wife. Eighteen years my husband has given to that mine, living half his life with dynamite and darkness. Miner wants to get his brothers out in one piece. You work alone, savvy? You can't handle a job, I'll find someone who can. Who, a scab? An American. We gotta get equality on the job. Then we'll work on these other things. Give it to the men. I see. The men. Your strike may be for your demands, but what wives want, that comes later, always later. Now, don't you start talking against the union again. La unidad de todos los hombres trabajadores. Much like any other strike, there would be no settlement, the company said, till the men returned to their jobs. Dear Ramon, God. listen to me. For the love of God. You! You! I'd expect it of an Anglo, yes. Ramon, I'm in but the you. I had to get a job. You, who the... Black sucker. Come on, my kids. Do. Traidora tu gente. Rompe huelgas, desgraciado. 
You think my kids have enough to eat, you rat? I know it's wrong. Just let me go. I lift down. Just let me go. It's only fair. If the women be allowed to vote. Especially if they have to do the job. Women who got nothing to do with the strike. Somehow they heard about the women picket line and they came. Standing by the water, we shall not be moved. This film is available, I think, uh, for free on YouTube. Um, now, I chose this film. I think it's a, a great film, um, but uh, I chose it for some of its historical context as well. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, if your viewers are as familiar with some of the, the context of the films in the 1950s. Um, but this film, to, to give a brief overview of the plot, it's about it's also about a strike. It's about a um, miner's strike at a zinc mine in New Mexico. Um, but it was also a film that uh, not only focuses on labor, but it also has a, um, you know, a, a sort of feminist message to it, uh, you know, with uh, empowering women as laborers and as workers uh, and recognizing them as, you know, recognizing domestic work as important and, and women's contributions as well. Um, but the sort of historical background of, of Salt of the Earth is what I think is actually um, pretty interesting. So this came out the same year as uh, On the Waterfront, which was directed by Elia Kazan. And um, this is how the, both of these films are coming out in the middle of, you know, the United States, the second Red Scare in, in the United States, you know, McCarthyism and um, and the HUAC, um, the, the House on american Activities Committee is conducting their investigations and um, questioning. And uh, we see during this time period, there's a lot of Hollywood blacklisting happening uh, and um, so Hollywood starts blacklisting, um, you know, or essentially blacklisting um, anyone who has um, any associations with communism, whether they're not just if they're communist members, but if they tend to have um, leanings towards communist ideas or, you know, friends who are communists. So um, people are getting actors, directors, writers are getting um, blacklisted left and right. Um, so. Elia Kazan was working with um, Arthur Miller uh, on writing on the waterfront. It was actually called The Hook. And um, Elia Kazan is called um, to HUAC to testify against um, some of his friends. And, and he does. And so he pretty much rats out some of his communist friends. He wants Arthur Miller to rewrite um, the, the script on the waterfront to sort of make it um, as a justification for him ratting out people to HUAC. Uh, Arthur Miller, of course, refuses. Um, he, you know, gets another screenwriter to, to rewrite On the Waterfront. On the Waterfront wins like 12 Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, etc. Um, Salt of the Earth comes out at the same time, but Hollywood bans it. And um, it's only shown in like, I think, 12 theaters. Um, it's banned because it has communist backing um, and union backing for it. So I think it's a sort of interesting con um, contrast, you know, knowing that historical context going into watching Salt of the Earth, um, because in the same year you have 
Uh, and this also kind of speaks to, to Hollywood's sort of liberal tendencies as well. Uh, you know, you have uh, On the Waterfront, which is uh, it, basically Elia Kazan's excuse for writing people out to HUAC, and it wins all these awards and is celebrated. And it's a wonderful movie, don't get me wrong, just cinematically. But, um, but then you have Salt of the Earth, which is also a really great movie, but it focuses on you know, labor issues, um, and it's completely banned, and, you know, people didn't really get to see it until, um, you know, the 60s. So that's a little background on on this movie. Lou, are you familiar with Salt of the Earth? Oh, how could I not be? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I'd say it's probably the, uh, the greatest uh, movie ever made about in the United States about labor struggles. It's just... Uh, uh, I, th- I think I, I guess the uh, the people in it are were actual uh, miners, and and uh, in the, in the film it, it's you 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 it's it's the the naturalism comes out of the uh, you know the the Italian uh, neo realist traditions obviously, uh, but it's 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 sort of like a a Europe like a European an Italian film made by communists except. They're Americans, and it's just, uh, I, I just wish there were more films like it, you know, and it was, and, and it's just, seeing how great a film it is, just reminds you how, uh, how, how shitty it was for the, for these people, uh, to lose, to lose their, to lose their, uh, jobs, and, the, and the, just the junk that was, that was being shown in American, uh, uh, movie houses in, in the, in the fifties, because these people were, couldn't, couldn't find work, uh, it's just, uh, it's a tragedy. I think one of the things that probably will strike people uh, watching Salt of the Earth um, is the fact that the protagonists are not white. These are not these these are not these are not white workers. You know, this is not sort of the 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 archetype of the white miner that you would think of. These are these are Hispanic uh, people of Hispanic origin. I believe they are Americans, and uh, but but not considered quote unquote fully American by their white sort of employers slash overseers. And so there is not only this labor uh, working class you know proletarian dynamic, but there is this racial and cultural dynamic too which of course brings in all you know all of the issues related to uh, you know mining in the southwest at that time and so forth Shallon I wanted to ask you why the movie got banned and what the process was and how it sort of got brought back into the public consciousness yes yeah, so it got banned uh, essentially because it was deemed as a communist movie and you know you could say yes it, it was um, it has those sorts of themes um, and it was, uh, it didn't really come back into, uh, people's consciousness until the sixties, um, when, uh, you know, the, the sort of sixties radicalism that was happening, um, they started looking towards, you know, these, these sort of labor films and, um, you know, more, um, left-leaning films and students, uh, you know, started, um, you know, watching these sorts of movies. And, and so then it sort of got a response more in the 60s, and it started to get, uh, get some more showings. Uh, And I believe that there's a, um, an actual labor college named um, Salt of the Earth Labor College that's based out of um, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, And it's that that was formed when um, I, I, believe this is correct that was formed when uh you know students started to you know watch this film and get motivated to um 
to actually get involved in labor issues. Okay, um, let's go for one more from Louis before we jump to the break. Louis, why don't you give us uh, one more of your recommendations? Well, well sure. Uh, Crimson Gold, that's um, an Iranian film. And, you know, I've, I've written maybe three or four articles by now about Iranian film for a counterpunch. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Iranian film. And uh, uh, Crimson Gold is, is just about my favorite Iranian film. And it's directed by Jafar Panahi, who um, was under house arrest for a couple of years for supporting the, uh, the, green, uh, the green Revolution. Uh, against the clerics, and this, but the script is by Abbas Kiarostami, who was, um, I, I would say, is um, I would just quote uh, um, Martin Scorsese says that uh, Kiarostami is uh, he, re- he said, rated him as like one of the one of the great filmmakers of the last fifty years, um, and the uh, Crimson Gold is 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 a, it's a film that. Um, comes about as close to um, a, a sort of like a class analysis and a, and a, and a radical critique of, of the pretensions of the uh, Islamic Republic, which for, for a lot of radicals, uh, it was just a, 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 a total uh, misunderstanding of, of what um, the, the, the government's anti-imperialist credentials uh, were, were about and, you know, the, the social realities of, of, of life in uh, Iran. The the character, the main character, he's he's a he's a pizza delivery man. It turns out the guy was not a professional actor. He was a he was a veteran of the of the Iran Iraq War, who um, who uh, died much too young. I, I I can't remember exactly how he why and why died. And I don't think it was suicide, but he died much too early. Um, but he was um, cast as as, as a person in Iranian society, very much like who he was in real life, which is somebody who's like sort of like on the very bottom of Iranian society, and uh, you know, just barely, barely making a living uh, delivering pizzas. And what his hope was was to be able to put together the money so that he could get married and live, uh, you know, live a, a fulfilled life when everything when everything was uh, going against him. So uh, basically, what he what tries to do is rob a uh, a jewelry store that ends tragically, and what you see in the film is this guy, his name is Hossein, going about his rounds delivering pizzas, and what he ends what he ends up uh, there's one scene which is just it's just draw dropping. He 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 delivers a pizza to to one of uh, to, the only way to describe it is a member of the Iranian bourgeoisie, a guy who lives in like a, a penthouse. And he's and he's and he, he guys um, takes the pizza in and invites invites Hussein in, and this this rich kid that's what he is a playboy best way to describe him is just um, you know um, his, his his life is like totally the distance between him and and Hussein socially is just light years and. Um, him trying to, uh, you know, to, to, to take Hossein's measure and to try to, you know, use him as a sounding board for his own grievances. It's, it really shows you that the psycholo- psychological insights of, of both pa- uh, Panahi and um, 
and uh, Kiarostami. Uh, and there's another scene in it where uh, uh, Kosein is on his way to uh, deliver um, pizzas, uh, and it's, it's a, 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 a party going on in the top floor of an apartment building. And the morality police have come to arrest everybody who's there. And um, it, 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 it took a lot, I tell you, it took a lot of guts on both Panahi and, uh, and Kiyastami to make such a film. It was, it was, it's never been shown in Iran. And uh, like, it's like everything else I've recommended. It's, it's available now on, um, on YouTube. And uh, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's just, uh, if anybody has illusions about, uh, you know, anti-imperialist Iran. You have you have to see this. You have to see this film. It's just it's just remarkable. I will I will admit I have not seen the whole film, but in preparation for our conversation, I did watch about the first twenty minutes of the film, and boy, it is. I mean, well, the first scene of the film is uh, that is that is one that is one that burns into your memory for sure. Shallon, have you seen have you seen Crimson Gold, or are you familiar with Kurosami generally? Uh, no, I, I'm very sad now after hearing that that I I have not. Well, um, I I would I would recommend I would recommend also the wind will carry us and certified yeah. copy. Uh, both of those both of those films are absolute must see films. And Kiristami is also one of my favorites. Um, okay, last one before we go to break, Shallon. All right. Well, um, the next one that I chose uh, is La Chinoise. Uh, it's a 1967 film by uh, French director Jean-Luc Godard. And uh, as Eric already knows, um, I actually co-wrote an article with Cosmonaut, um, with, um, with Doug Green uh, for Cosmonaut called A Fight on Two Fronts, where we explore this film in depth. Um, but essentially, this movie uh, is about a French um, Maoist collective of uh, radical students who um, essentially plan to assassinate the, the minister of culture. Um, but the movie's really not so much about the plot and, and anyone who's seen any Godard films um, knows that he doesn't really focus on character development or plots. That's not really the point of his films. Uh, he thinks about his films like essays. Uh, and for Godard, very similar to Eisenstein, uh, he wanted film to break out of the traditional, you know, kind of Hollywood style, what Godard called the Hollywood machine. Um, and, you know, he wanted to essentially make film a, a vehicle for revolution. So uh, La Chinoise was um, this and Weekend uh, were kind of his last films that really had any sort of pretensive artisticness to it. Um, and after that, he just essentially started making agitprop films. Um, but uh, I think it's it's a really cool film with a, a lot going on. So we can talk about whichever part you want to talk about. Louis, uh, what's your experience with La Chinoise? Uh, did you see it uh, when it was new? Have you seen it recently? No, I haven't seen it, but I would say this. Uh, I consider uh, Weekend, is a 67 film uh, one of the greatest films ever made. Um, I, uh, you know, it's 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 really what is like a post-apocalyptic film about um, just about a, a bourgeois society um, uh, 
uh, falling apart. It's, it's I don't know if it, I don't know if it's uh, for, you could watch it on YouTube, but uh, if if there's any way you could see it uh, and whatever you know from whatever service, it's 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 really great and especially uh, and, and consistent with uh, with our experience uh, right now with the uh, social distancing. It, it's, we, it's 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 a, it's a capitalist society just coming apart at the seams <laughs> and the other one that I, I, by, by Godard I would strongly recommend is called Contempt which is about um, you know uh, uh, the, 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 the clash between Hollywood Hollywood uh, <laughs> uh, big time producers and, a, and a, a, a someone like more like Godard and it's got some great performance in it, but with Jack Palance oh Jack Palance and, in that movie and Bridget Bardot my god yeah, it's it's it, both uh, weekend and 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 contempt are two of my favorite films. So I, I would just throw that into the you know into the ring. Shallon, I I haven't I actually I've seen a lot of Godard, but I haven't seen this one. So tell us a little bit about it. I mean, what what was the angle of the piece that you wrote, and what should we understand from a uh, you know from a, from a socialist uh, Marxist perspective? Yeah. So um, well, first I should say that it's available for streaming for free on Vimeo. I know that's not one that people typically go to, but you can watch it there. Um, so what's sort of interesting about La Chinoise to me and um, why we decided to write about it uh, is that uh, Godard is really drawing from two, you know, left perspectives um, that aren't discussed as much in and, you know, typically when people look at like Soviet film and so forth, some of these ideas don't really get brought up. So he's he's looking from both um, he's looking for inspiration from both Brecht and Mao, um, which seems, you know, might seem sort of like an odd um, coupling. Uh, but from the Brechtian side, uh, Godard is really. Um, looking to use Brecht's ideas of alienation and um, socialist theater. And uh, what Brecht wanted to do was get his audience to uh, to actually engage with what's going on in theater. They, he didn't want them to sit in their chairs, watch theater like an art piece, and then go home and go on about their you know bourgeois lives. Instead, Brecht wanted theater to be you know, a, a driver for revolution. Uh, and so Godard is looking at, starting to look at film in this way. Uh, and La Chinoise is sort of his um, experiment with this kind of idea. But he's also um, looking to uh, Maoism, particularly French Maoism. Um, and, you know, in this time period, we see a lot of um, Maoist uh, or a lot of student radicalism that are turning towards Maoism um, because they're finding that, in, in, in their view, um, Soviet communism um, has, you know, sort of lost its way in their, in their perspective. And really, um, you know, the cultural revolution for them is, is something that seems to have the kind of revolutionary uh, attitudes that they really wanted to emulate. So, um, but the film's the film's very strange. Uh, you know, it's um, it's it's actually not my favorite Godard film, um, but it's interesting in how he does it. Um, you know, so much of what he does within the film is he has the actors break the fourth wall and and talk to the audience directly. Um, he he uses all these sorts of um, Brechtian kinds of techniques where he's 
juxtaposing images that seem um, contradictory to each other, um, but he's sort of embracing um, a sort of Maoist dialectical um, approach. And, um, and there's also an element of, um, I, should, I should mention that Godard was working with um, the French Maoist um, at this time in real life. Um, so, you know, the, the actors that he has were actual student radicals, and he does use some actual Maoist in the film. Um, but there's, there's also an element of sort of uh, critiquing the students as well. So the film kind of is a mixed bag between him, you know, sort of championing um, the revolutionary attitudes and, and um, ideas that are happening, but it's also kind of critiquing the sort of naivete of, of, these, of these kids who are sort of, you know, renegades in a sense. Um, so it's, it's definitely different than any of the other films we've talked about, but, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of ideas being explored in it. Very interesting. Got to check that one out. Add that to the Godard library. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Um, enjoy the music. We'll continue the conversation with Louie and Shallon on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Everybody's a dreamer And everybody's a star And everybody's in movies It doesn't matter who you are There are stars in every city In every house and on every street And if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard Their names are written in concrete As you walk down the boulevard She looks so weak and fragile That's why she tried to be so hard But they turned her into a princess And they sat her on a throne But she turned her back on stardom Because she wanted to be alone See all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Boulevard Some that you recognize, some that you have even heard of People who worked, suffered and struggled for fame Some who succeeded, some who suffered in vain Looks very much alive And he looks up ladies' dresses As they sadly pass him by Avoid stepping on Bella Legosi Because he's liable to turn and bite But stand close by Betty Davis Because hers was such a lonely life See all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Boulevard Some that you recognize, some that you hardly even heard 
Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Louis Project and Shalyn Van Tyne. Uh, go follow Louis's work, louisproject.org, and also on Counterpunch and uh, Shalyn's work on shalynvantyne.com. Okay, so uh, we finished up before the break talking Godard and La Chinoise, and now Louis, I want to hear about your next film, uh, Jado by uh, Usman Semben. Um, not even sure I got the pronunciation right, but his last name is S-E-M-B-E-N-E. He's uh, considered the father of African cinema. He's uh, uh, from Senegal, and uh, he was a communist, and he uh, was working uh, on the docks in in, uh, Marseille. I'm not sure what uh, what city in France. Um, And um, he uh, injured his back on the uh, on the docks and spent uh, spent like six months in traction uh, in, the, in the hospital serious accident and uh, what he was reading working on a novel and somewhere along the line he uh, decided that the best way to reach the masses was by by filmmaking so he basically trained himself to be a director a screenwriter and director and uh, made um, made some really great films, but all of them very political, really, really great political films. And uh, I, I love him. I just I love his work. But uh, Jeto is is, is, uh, is I, I, I guess it's my favorite film of his. It's about set. It's not exactly what time of uh, or what period it is. It's either 18th or 19th century. It's it's, it's a time before capitalism is really reach much of uh, of africa it's it's set in a you know rural area and it's it, what it's about is um how uh how islam is is uh is and slavery are being um introduced into a village and what, what uh the jeddo c double d o are the outsiders the people who who are who are live in a traditional society and might be um you know, um, um, what's the word? Uh, they're not. They're certainly not. Have, don't have anything to do with with uh, Islam or Christianity. The tra- tra- traditional religious belief, traditional social organization. And what's happening is slavery. Is there's a cut, a deal cut between the king of, the, of this of this? I, I, get, I don't know whether you call it a village or or an area region. Uh, has cut a deal with with. Um, with uh, Islamic um, power brokers, that in exchange for favors from them and and the um, and whites, I guess I guess are French, um, the people would be sold into slavery. So the star of the movie, he's uh, he's uh, he's a warrior. What he does is he kidnaps the daughter of the king and sort of tries to. Um, Get this process of you know introduction of slavery reversed. It's an uphill battle, but um, it's 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 the film is is just it, it creates this, this this world where all these you know contending forces, social and political, religious forces of, of African colonialism come into play 
they're dramatized in a way that you it's just hard to imagine how some uh, someone could have done this so successfully the film it's it's like um it's both a treatment of of, of larger social forces historical forces but also of characters because what you have is like sort of like a budding romance between this warrior and the king's daughter uh so uh, the other thing about um about um ben is he's a master storyteller and um so anyhow, this this film is 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 online for free. It's it's C E Double D O. It's great. I did watch I did watch Seto and boy, it, it is really an interesting film. I, I I kept thinking, you know, of these sort of like very consciously melodramatic, you know, filmmakers who did a lot of this melodrama. Uh, I'm thinking of a filmmaker like Fassbender or people like that who had this sort of melodramatic quality to each scene, and that is really striking in that film, and actually in, in Black Girl as well, which is Semide's other film that a lot of people know. Shallon, have you seen Sido or Black Girl? I haven't seen Sido, but I have seen Black Girl, um, and I really enjoyed that film. It was, I don't want to say too much about it, but people should also watch that one. It's it's sort of tragic and um, has a good contrast between you know the poor and the bourgeoisie. <laughs> Louis, I want to ask you real quick, Sedo, uh, Do you think would you call Sedo an anti-colonial film? Um, because that, you know, that word gets thrown around a lot. And if you watch the movie, I, I, I found the movie to be very complex and not even necessarily totally straightforward in what the sort of, you know, line you're supposed to get from it really is. Well, absolutely. I, I, I agree. Simban is, he's not a propagandist. He's a, um, he's, he's, what he's interested in is, is challenging your, um, you know, sort of like forcing you to think about, um, you know, the different realities. So for one thing, the, the, you know, for, uh, for many Africans, Islam is, is a progressive force. It's, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a religion that's anti-Western. So, um, what happened actually is, um, the, uh, the Shah of Iran wanted to, um, use the film as sort of like a, um, you know, a propaganda piece against, uh, uh, against, uh, Khomeini, uh, and, and, uh, Semben refused. Uh, so it's, the, the film, the films, his films are really like thought pieces. They really, um, they really require you to, to think more deeply about, um, some of the issues that, that can be, you know, you can't, they can be reduced to, um, well, you know, just to just to um, black and white. Shallon, your next film. Well, my next film is probably my favorite from this particular list. Um, it's El Norte. It came out in 1983 and was directed by Gregory Nava. Uh, now, the historical context of El Norte um, is it's, you know, during um, the Guatemalan Civil War and um, or you know for for your viewers who or for your listeners who um, are kind of unfamiliar with what's going on in Guatemala at this time uh, you know a U.S. backed coup uh, installed a military regime uh, there and it resulted in a whole series of right-wing dictatorships throughout the country um, and that military government was you know torturing and executing thousands of um, 
indigenous and peasant citizens, um, so much so that it's, you know, later deemed the, the Guatemalan genocide. Um, so that's really the historical context of what this film is, where uh, you have an indigenous brother and sister, um, Rosa and Enrique, and um, they're essentially fleeing the country, um, you know, to hopefully flee this violence, and they're hoping to go to El Norte, the north, to, to the United States. Um, and so the film is really um, about their journey from Guatemala to the United States and adjusting to um, American culture. Um, so it's, it's not actually about um, the Guatemalan Revolution or, or the Guatemalan Genocide, but what's interesting about it is that the story is showing you essentially the, you know, the sort of domino effect of, of uh, capitalism and imperialism and, and it has, as it affects these two particular individuals. Louis, I know you were active in the 1980s in a lot of the uh, activism around what was going on in Latin America. What's your uh, experience with this film and uh, with that time period? Well, yeah, I mean, I was sort of in the middle of all this. Um, you know, I, after I left the Trotskyist movement in um, 19, uh, 1978, uh, you know, I was, I was knocking around the idea of uh, becoming a novelist. And it would have been a Good idea. It was a good idea at the time, except that I really uh, wasn't very good at writing fiction. <laughs> so it's kind of a problem. But uh, by 1981, um, I sort of uh, the Central America had, had quite got my attention. I uh, I got involved with the Committee in Solidarity of the People of El Salvador, CISPIS, and uh, at the time they were. Um, you know, there were there were uh, there was also a group, Cisco, uh, committing solidarity with the people of Guatemala, and I became friends with a, an artist named Alfredo Cebal. Bought his paintings. Uh, his um, his paintings were were sort of like the uh, artistic equivalent of El, El Norte, about um, you know about peasants and uh, and having to deal with the military and with repression. Although his he had to be careful, like his films, his, excuse me, his, his art couldn't be, you know, that he could, it, they couldn't be propagandistic because it would have ramifications for his family. And, he, you know, he moved to New York City. Um, but El Norte, when I saw it, it was, it was at this, you know, it was to me, it was a film, it was just, you know, perfect uh, representation of what, um, of, you know, what, uh, what's the suffering of Central America. And it also... It's 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 about um, you know the the immigrant experience that uh, that you know would never it's 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 a never ending uh, tra tragedy of people being forced from to leave their homes because of, you know how how imperialism destroys their ability to reproduce themselves you know they, 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 you can't you can't feed your family you can't put a roof over their heads you can't pay for the medical care that they need. So you're forced to, you know, to, to come to the United States, not because you love this country, but because it's the only way to stay alive. And what the, what the film is about is, um, you know, the alienation of people, you know, working, working as, as, as servants and housekeepers. And uh, there's, you know, there's millions of people like that in the United States. And uh, for a film like that to, you know, to take up their cause and to, you know, to show what their lives are like was, for me, it was a, a huge achievement. So it's a great film, absolutely great film. 
and coming out as it did, Shallon, I mean, this is at the time period, uh, I mean, this is when the Reaganite propaganda was at its peak uh, regarding what was going on down in Latin America. The, the story of what the Contras were really doing was still uh, very much debated, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and I, I believe that the film was actually made by PBS, like, um, you know, they funded, they it had a very small budget, they funded it um, as people um, were starting to, as, as some of these uh, atrocities were starting to come to the surface, uh, you know, many, you know, regular Americans didn't know about, you know, what all was going on. So the film came about during that time period. And of course, it has a tremendous relevance to today because, of course, you know, all this talk from the orange idiot about migrant caravans and all of this other stuff. I mean, of course, these the cycle of violence and imperialism and neocolonialism has really gone on unabated since then. Well, actually, really since the 1950s, if you want to be a little more accurate. Yeah. And, and what's so great about this film? I mean, you know, even if you're not someone who's a on the left. Um, it's, it's a beautiful film. Uh, it's done so well. And, um, you know, what's so great about it is precisely because it's not a propaganda film. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's just sort of a a work of art on its own, but it does such a a good job of, um, sort of illustrating and, and putting right in front of you the effects of, um, you know, American imperialism, uh, without, you know, sort of preaching at you about it. Uh, and, and so the characters in the film, the brother and sister, you know, throughout the film, they, they go from like tragedy to tragedy. And I, I won't, you know, list them because I don't want to spoil the film. But, you know, it's it's one thing after another. And they still have like throughout most of the film, this sort of hope that if they go to the north, like things will be better. And then, you know, obviously it's not. And um, it does such a good job at sort of comparing, you know, their hopes and dreams and, and the sort of image of America that was in their mind versus, you know, the reality that they actually experience. We have a, a review coming up uh, for films uh, it's May 1st. Is VOD. It's it's like a, a number of films that I've been reviewing lately that um, that haven't made it to the theaters because the theaters are closed. Obviously, uh, it's called Our Mothers, and it's a um, 2019 film uh, directed by Cesar Diaz, and it follows a forensic anthropologist in Guatemala investigating the disappearance of his father, a guerrilla fighter who went missing in the 80s. So. Um, uh, I'll, uh, I'll be posting a link to that, um, on, uh, Eric's, uh, uh, Facebook group, um, uh, pretty soon. Excellent. Very good. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, okay, Louie, uh, you're up next. And, uh, if my list is correct, you're going to name one of the greatest films ever made. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I have, I have a soft spot, really a soft spot for, um, Ingmar Bergman, um, the um it's it's like um you know when you got to remember what it was like in 1961 on refreshment at bard every week there's a film by corsau uh fellini antonioni um uh ingmar bergman um it's it's just it's it's an, it's an incredible time to be introduced to art films and for me um bergman is is um you know I, I love him the way I, I love Shakespeare 
because his, his films are, you know, they're about um, they're not they're not political in any real sense, but they're they're about you know the basic existential dilemmas of of, of you know life and death, suffering, loneliness, alienation, and, and that was what people were experiencing, young people were experiencing in, in that, that time. It wasn't, you know, there's no mass movement. There's no radicalization, hardly, you know, there's things that are just beginning to, to, to bubble up, but it's mostly, you know, you're reading Camus, you're, you know, you're, you Bergman films. So anyhow, that was um, part, you know, just part of my growing up. And uh, the film, Seventh Seal in particular is a film I, I just deeply love. It's about, and about, um, very similar to the experience we're going through now. I mean, you know, there's this, it's about, it's about a plague, people dying in the, you know, the, from the, um, I guess the black plague, you know, the bubonic plague and trying to stay one step ahead of, of death. Who's, who's a character in the film, you know, he's wearing a hood and, um, Max von Sydow is the, is the star. He plays a knight and he's trying to, you know, stay one step ahead of death by, by playing chess with with uh, death, and the you know I'm a chess player myself, so you know identify strongly both with the film with the, what's happened now. You know I'm just every time I walk out on the street, I'm thinking I'm oh, Jesus Christ, am I gonna you know am I gonna get nailed by uh, by uh, the angel of death? Um, but uh, I you know I I got it uh, down here as uh, as a film that could be seen uh, you know online and if. It's just one that um, it's a beautiful film, beautifully, visually beautifully, emotionally involving, and and you know a, a work by an artist at his peak. So what else, what else can I tell you? <laughs> I mean that that's that's exactly right. Seventh Seal, Shallon, your thoughts? Oh well, I mean Bergman's my favorite director of all time. I've seen I think almost all of his films, and Seventh Seal is just a perfect film. So what's more to say? <laughs> You know, I think Max von Sydow just recently passed away, and uh, I was thinking about this film when when I heard that that he passed because, you know, I'm I grew up uh, I'm you know I was born in the 1980s, so I grew up in the 1990s, and I my first encounter with the, uh, even a reference to uh, Bergman and Seven Seal is Bill and Ted, the Bill and Ted movie, where they also have to play chess against the Grim Reaper. And only much later did I realize that that was a reference to one of the greatest films ever made. But I want to know, I want to know, Louis, uh, when you saw the film, because, well, let me, let me put it this way. One of the things about the film that's striking to me, most striking to me, is the color. Or the lack, the, the the lack of color, right? The blacks and the right. whites, and and you know you could see a million black and white films, and black and white is not necessarily always registering. It doesn't always, it's not always striking. And yet, in this film, black and white, it, they're almost like characters. Yeah. Well, you know the final scene where they're dancing across the uh, the top of a of a mountain or a or a hill in in profile with uh, death um, at the head of the line. Uh, that 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 image, will, you know, it's it's like seared in my brain. I'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll remember it for the you know the rest of my life. And it, it, because it's studying the contrast between uh, them, uh, their their figures against the, this black and white um, backdrop. And there's no way, no way that if that was made in color, they would have the same dramatic impact. 
So there'll always be a place for black and white, believe me. Absolutely. And one of Bergman's favorite filmmakers, the one that he really kind of nurtured in terms of the career is uh, Andrei Tarkovsky. And Tarkovsky is another filmmaker who really pairs very nicely with Bergman if you have the stomach and the patience for that sort of paced film. But um, I would recommend, you know, a film, a film like Stalker or even, uh, you know, uh, The Mirror. Uh, Tarkovsky learned a lot from Bergman and Bergman was one of the reasons why Tarkovsky was able to leave the Soviet Union when he did. Yeah, and Tarkovsky, you know, really idolized Bergman and Brisson. I think he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, he only cared about the opinions of two people, Bergman and Brisson. <laughs> yeah. And Tarkovsky's amazing, too. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great stuff out there. People people gotta, you know, <laughs> stay away from Adam Sandler. It'll, it'll rot out your brain. <laughs> Watch these films. You'll learn something. Yeah, ex exactly. Well, um, we are almost at the end here. So, Shallon, I want to hear your last film. And this is, uh, well, let's hear about your last film. All right. Well, for my last film, I wanted to pick something a little more contemporary. Um, so I picked uh, Sorry to Bother You. came out in 2018, um, directed by Boots Riley. I'm just out here surviving. And what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Baby, baby, it will always matter. Oh. But you said you fixed that. Get a room. I got a room, mother. Hey, Cash, how much longer I got to wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you want to hog it to yourself and your family and- Me and my family? Yeah. Cassius, I'm your fucking uncle. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davidson, Cassius Green here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. Ah. Oh, yeah. All right. Going upstairs, power caller. They even have their own elevator. Welcome, power caller. I hope you did not masturbate today. We need you sharp and ready to go. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What do they sell? They're not selling, but we sell it. No, well, there's no amount of money that make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be clear. It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Cash, I'm gonna make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no, but I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering you. Cash, you are awesome. Oh, yeah. All right. It was, it's an independent film, uh, essentially, specifically to, um, you know, 
make us think about capitalism and he's calling people to strike against it. So um, the plot is um, pretty simple. Basically, uh, it's about a strike at a a crappy telemarketing job. And I've worked telemarketing jobs before and I can vouch for the fact that how it's portrayed in the film is exactly the awfulness that um, those sorts of jobs are like. Um, But in the process of, um, you know, the the main character uh, whose whose name is Cassius, um, Cash Green, uh, I believe, uh, he, uh, you know, learns about the larger problems of capitalism and um, as he sort of moves up within the company. Uh, And it's it's a really great movie. Um, It's it's got a quirkiness to it. There's a lot of sort of magical realist elements in it. Um, you know, when he's, you know, for example, when he's, um, doing his telemarketing, his phone sales, it sort of drops him right into people's lives. So you sort of get this, um, sort of, you know, quirkiness to the film. Um, but there's a lot of, um, really good positions that the film takes about, uh, you know, capitalism and strikes and how, you know, just asking people to call their, um, you know, call their congressman is not going to actually solve the problem, you know, things like that. Um, it, it makes a lot of, uh, a lot of critiques on the art world, um, a lot of critiques on the media, on, you know, the entertainment industry, the culture industry. Uh, so there's a lot going on in the film and, it, you know, it's got a lot of humor too. Um, but it also, you know, you could you could take images and and scenes from the film, and it's it's many of them are directly right from Marx, you know. So, uh, really really good fun one uh, for people to watch, and I think that they'll connect with it. Louis, did you see? Sorry to bother you. Sure. Yeah. I just one thing that should uh, be mentioned: the uh, the director was, uh, I think, either a member or a child. Um, child of people who were in the Progressive Labor Party, a Maoist group talking about Le Chinoise earlier. And, um, you know, it, uh, although the film is, is has sort of like very modern, um, or how should I put it, uh, artistic uh, uh, style, uh, the politics are, are, are sort of like a throwback to the uh, to the good old days, the 1960s. Barbara, Yes, but if you want to go and get, if you were in a time machine, what period would you go back to? I'd, I'd, I'd take the 60s any any day of the week. Yeah, and, and one of the things about the film, too, that I thought was really um, effective was the way that it incorporated a lot of the... A lot of the issues that are front and center for young people, uh, things like gentrification and the cost of rent in cities like Oakland or Brooklyn or wherever it might be, uh, talking about the, the, the gig workers and gig economy and, and uh, educated people forced into low-wage jobs, etc. So there was a lot there that wasn't just, you know, like agitprop sort of communist, uh, you know, uh, uh, filmmaking, but also dealing very much with issues that are front and center in our politics today, even if you're, you know, simply a Bernie Sanders supporter, you're familiar with a lot of these issues that come up. You don't have to necessarily be a hardened uh, revolutionary to get it. Oh, mm-hmm. can I just uh, throw one more thing out? Um, this is speaking of um, uh, gig workers and the uh, precariat. Um, 
a film a film that's VOD now, okay? Um, and if, unfortunately, you know, the film the film forum was a victim of this pandemic. Sorry We Missed You is Ken Loach's latest film, okay? And it's about a guy who ends up delivering packages. It's sort of like an Amazon driver. Great. And um, what you could do is just uh, just Google Sorry We, Sorry we Missed You, which is uh, the message that's left like when you're delivering a package and, the, and, and people aren't home, it's, it's about just the, the misery and, and the, uh, you know, the economic, uh, uh, you know, just the, the, how difficult it is to, to, you know, to, to make a living as, as, a, as a, 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 a someone, they, <laughs> supposedly the guy takes a job driving a truck, you know, deliver packages. Uh, he's supposed to be self-employed like Uber, you know, but it's a, it's a myth. Uh, anyhow, it's Ken. Lo it's one of Ken Loach's greatest films. Sorry to miss you. VOD right now through uh, through a service that's supporting film form. A lot of these art art houses that have been victimized by the pandemic. Great recommendation. I got to I got to look into that one. Okay, I guess. Well, that that opens the that opens the floor here in the last minute or two. Uh, Shallon, are there any films uh, that you're looking for that are coming in 2020 or 2021 that you're excited about? Uh, you know, I the the most recent film that I, I I'm not sure what's coming out. I never really keep up with that. Um, but I would say that probably the most recent film I really enjoyed um, was. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, you know, I, I won't say too much about it, but it was a beautiful film um, that I don't think I saw many people talk about. So if, I think that might be on Hulu. So people should watch that one. Uh, Louis, any anything else you're looking you're looking forward to besides the one you just mentioned? Well, actually, I, I you know that's I got a about sixty films sitting here from the, the studios. <laughs> That I was, you know, supposed to go through for the uh, for our awards meeting, and that that film, uh, Lady on Fire, is uh, is one of them, and I've been meaning to get around to it. So that's that's definitely on my list of, of films to see myself. Well, uh, despite the anti-Hollywood rhetoric in this episode of the podcast, I will say <laughs> that I am just absolutely uh, on pins and needles waiting for Denis Villeneuve's version of Dune. Uh, the the photos the photos that have come out about Dune just looks amazing. All right, all right. So uh, with 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 that, um, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Hopefully, we can do something like this again. Louis Project blogs at louisproject.org. He's also a regular contributor at Counterpunch. You can find his film reviews and other stuff there. Uh, Shallon Van Tyne is a PhD student at Ohio University. You can go to the website shallonvantyne.com. Shallon, Louis, thanks so much for coming and talking with us today. You're quite welcome, Eric. Thanks for Enjoy. having me. Thank you again, listeners. Thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.